0: What if someone discovered a secret early recording of Hamilton, but with all the songs performed by Beyoncé? Well, that hasn't happened, at least not yet. But researchers have discovered the 19th century equivalent. It's a John Philip Sousa arrangement of a Gilbert and Sullivan opera.
1: I am the very model of a modern major general. life information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England and the coat of fights historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I am very well acquainted to
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, we bring you stories of unexpected remixes, newly discovered arrangements, surprising new songs, and even some sounds that, until recently couldn't be heard by the human ear. But first, Brooks Kirkendall is a professor of music at the University of Mary Washington. There, he and a graduate student are uncovering musical history.
2: I don't really remember a time before Gilbert and Sullivan in my life, when I was four years old, my mother tells me that what I wanted to do for my birthday party was to invite over my other four-year-old friends and listen to the Mikado, which is one of these Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. It's a little less than two hours long. My mother recognized that wouldn't be a good idea for a bunch of restless four-year-olds, so we did something else. But when I was in graduate school, I went to Cornell in musicology, uh, and I went there to work on 18th-century music, you know, Handel and Haydn and and, and Mozart. But I was in the library one day looking at a Gilbert and Sullivan score because I still had that, uh, that addiction, and a, a professor asked me about it. And it took me a while to realize you have permission to be yourself. And so a lot most of my publications have been related to Gilbert or Sullivan or, or both of them. Uh, my childhood geekiness is uh, turned into my profession. It is great to be to be paid to do what you already love to do.
0: I remember how much my mother loved Gilbert and Sullivan. Would play it on the piano, sing it. Give three cheers and three cheers more That's... for the well-dressed captain of the Pinafore.
2: <laughs> That's exactly it. They're performed all the time. So, uh, the Pirates of Pinsence you know, has the patter song, I am the very model of a modern major general. I am the very model of a modern major general of information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. The trademark of those pieces are these comic moments of lots and lots of fast words. Very quickly, all impeccably rhymed and in meter, something that the librettist Gilbert, the guy who wrote the words, did so well. In the Pirates of Penzance, it opens with the great number "I Am the Pirate King," and the, you, the chorus says, "Hurrah! He is the Pirate King." The mastery of Gilbert and Sullivan is is to triumph on absurdity, ridiculous situations presented on the stage, but presented deadpan as the characters believe it.
0: It's part of the reason why I'm so amazed that. Someone I associate with military precision and the excitement of a march, John Philip Sousa, copied Gilbert and Sullivan pieces.
2: He, he did, absolutely. And Sarah, think about the marches that you've heard. Actually, any band concert, they're going to play Sousa. Like the Liberty Bell. It was used as the theme of uh, the Monty Python's Flying Circus. Right. The Washington Post march uh, is... Uh, The one we know best of all, The Stars and Stripes Forever, uh, which begins. But probably the most memorable part is the the part I knew growing up as, Be kind to your web-footed friends. It's great melodies that stick with us and have made it around the world. It's not just Americans who know this music, although we can treasure it as our own. He was really the first superstar American musician.
0: How did you first become fascinated that he at some point composed a lot of scores for these Gilbert and Sullivan popular plays?
2: Yeah, my my fascination with Sousa comes in sort of the back door. It comes from the Gilbert and Sullivan side, because Gilbert and Sullivan's success actually led to pirated productions. People were mounting their own productions without paying any money to the creators. They were in England, and all the pirated productions were happening mainly in this country, particularly in New York, and eventually all over the country. Uh, There was a time where there were more than 100 productions of HMS Pinafore happening in this country, not a cent of which was going back to the creators.
0: And who was composing or putting those well, plays on? Well, so
2: to put on a musical like that, you know, a musical production, you need more than just the words. Somebody would have to take the vocal score and come up with the notes for the orchestra to play.
0: Would tons of composers do this? Lesser-known people would just say, hey, please do an orchestral score for the upcoming HMS Pinafore the, we're putting on.
2: I'm sure there are many uh, musicians who were involved whose names are lost to us. But it happens there's one name that stands out. John Philip Sousa, who was working for a Philadelphia musical theater company when they wanted to mount a production of HMS Pinafore. And so they turned to him, a 24-year-old violinist, and said, can you take the vocal score and give us parts our orchestra can use, which he does. But it's rather different from Sullivan's. It's actually much, much thicker, much more elaborate. There are more notes, to put it that way, there are more notes in Sousa's score than Sullivan's. Sullivan tends to score with some restraint because he doesn't want to get in the way of the voices. And he says, the other arrangements that I've heard, these parroted arrangements, tend to have too many notes on the page. Let me show you what I mean. A familiar song from HMS Pinafore is called I'm Called Little Buttercup. And um, Sullivan gives us an introduction, a very short introduction, that where the whole orchestra is playing. But then the orchestra just plays some chords in the background while the singer would sing. And we'll hear that. Here you hear just the strings playing the chords, uh, playing the harmony to support the singer, but nothing else. It's very discreet. But when we hear the Susa version, it's going to have a similar loud introduction. Actually, it's a little bit louder. He throws in the, the big drums and the trombone as well. And when it starts with the voice... (music) A flowering of other instruments, flute, clarinet, cornet, horn, all thrown in there. And then it keeps going. These arpeggios in the flute, all extra. I think Sullivan would say too many notes. So, hearing the Sousa version, it is very thick, but it's a different approach than what Sullivan was doing. The Sousa version hasn't really been heard until now. The Sousa version is, is good music. Uh, he is a, a master composer and arranger, but it's very different than Sullivan's original. Sullivan's is very sparse. It certainly leaves room for the singers. Sousa's version, he's making you very much aware of the genius in the orchestra pit.
0: So, where did you find this Sousa version.
2: So the Sousa version we just heard is a reconstruction from manuscript parts used by a company in Australia from 1879 on for several decades and remaining there in a library in Sydney. So Elise Ritter, who's a, my research collaborator, mm-hmm. and I ordered up scans of these parts to reconstruct the score because although the parts survive, a part for the flute, a part for the oboe, a part for the clarinet, We don't have the score that lines all of that up together. There's a little bit of the score in Sousa's hand at the Library of Congress, but only about a quarter of the whole piece. No MP3s. No recordings, no recordings. And so the recording we heard, we had to reconstruct with the University of Mary Washington Philharmonic.
0: What do you want us to understand about what this moment in time where Sousa covered Gilbert and Sullivan and it played? with abandon throughout the United States. What do you want us to get about back then?
2: I think one thing that is hard for us to understand now, that without copyright control in the way that we think of it today, it was the Wild West. And Sousa was part of that. And Sousa is just a window into this world. He's a window for us because he's a big name. But he wasn't a big name then. And so many others you know, have been lost. We wouldn't know about what these pirated productions were like had that big name not been involved. What fascinates me, though, is this idea of multiple hands at work creating just a text that we think of. Already it was Gilbert writing words. It was Sullivan writing music. They had other collaborators doing costume and scenery and so on. But to add into that mix yet another genius, Sousa, and to see what he would do with it. It is like the cover versions that we, we see today. And it's a refreshing new way to look at the piece.
0: Let's pick a Gilbert and Sullivan song to go out on.
2: Why not Three Little Maids from School?
3: Three little maids from school are we Part as a schoolgirl well can be Filled to the brim with girlish glee Three little maids from school Everything is a source of so fun Nobody's safe for we care for none Life is a joke that's just begun
0: Brooks Kirkendall is a musicologist and professor at the University of Mary Washington. Coming up next... More songs you've probably never heard before, because the singers aren't even human.
3: Three little maids from school, three little maids from school.
0: Along with his collaborator, Dr. Casey Fowler-Finn, Virginia Commonwealth University professor Stephen Vitiello makes sound art out of an unlikely source, insect calls. Stephen, tell me how you first teamed up with a biologist To record vibrations from insects.
4: 2014, I was an artist in residence at the Mountain Lake Biological Station. And I I gave a talk about how the world opened up to me when I was listening through the windows of the World Trade Center, and then talked about environmental recordings, going to the Amazon, uh, recording among the Yanomami. And then two days later, I went to a talk by one of the biologists, and she was talking about listening to insects through surface vibration and I got that kind of tingly excited feeling of finding (laughs) a kindred soul.
0: This was Casey Fowler Finn and what a great recording pair you guys made.
4: I couldn't be happier and you know we've now spent many 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 hours over several years sitting side by side in thorny fields of (laughs) of you know bees buzzing and, and insects landing on us with two sets of headphones going into a professional sound recorder and different kinds of listening devices and and sharing a sound world that I never knew existed.
0: Give me an example of the kind of things you would signal to each other as a good sound came up.
4: You know, we're, we're listening through the, the vibrations, say, on the stem of a flower or of a tree branch, but it can still pick up our voices, so a lot of it's eyes, a lot of it's elbows, a lot of it's a funny kind of I mean, intimacy is maybe misread, but there's just this connection of sitting together and listening and going, that's a wow moment. Maybe there's some scribbling back and forth because I'm saying, what is that? And I'm trying to make note that on the tape at two hours and 36 minutes and 10 seconds, I heard something I'd never heard before. And she's scribbling, I don't know, small black bug with red stripe. Um, need to look it up later. Uh. <laughs>
0: Nate, <laughs> just give me a litany of the kinds of creatures you have recorded together. In the
4: primary focus of, of Casey's research is treehoppers.
0: Are those frogs or insects?
4: No, those are small insects. They, um, they look like aliens, like a, maybe a tiny, 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 tiny dinosaur. Uh, the male puts out a certain call, and if the female is intrigued, she puts out this sort of soothing, ah, kind of sound kind of goes mm, mm. I mean it's it's almost comical but it's um but it's what we found
0: that's great Mm. right
4: I I think so I mean uh, and it's (gasps) You know, every time we record them, it's it's different. But you do start to kind of recognize certain tones, certain sounds, certain kinds of voices. I don't know if "voices" is the right word, but I think it is.
0: You have said before that you listen for an emotional experience mm-hmm. in these vibrations. W- what do you mean, emotional? Was that emotional?
4: You know, for me, it is. It's a gut reaction before it's intellectual. It, it's it's a lot of it. It's just hearing something that stirs my blood changes my breathing affects me some way that feels real and maybe we could listen to five different ones and there's one that jumps out it's deeper it's darker it's it goes for a certain amount of time or it intersects with another sound but there's something like a musical sound that you might hear in a classical piece it has depth and it it jumps out of the speakers or out of the headphones to me
0: Share another couple with me.
4: Sure. I believe this is the sound of a caterpillar walking um, along the edge of a leaf. Hopefully you can make it out, but those are tiny little footsteps of, of a caterpillar even without seeing it, and maybe even more so because you're not seeing it, it should come to life in in your imagination.
0: It's amazing. Are there even smaller creatures that you're able to record, smaller than the caterpillars and the treehoppers?
4: There is ants. I'll play you another recording of ants all gathering on a leaf and basically attacking the tape that's holding down their microphone. Another recording I'll play for you, which I really love, is the Stink Bug, which has this deep resonant tone, um, and it's probably an alarm call. Uh, take a listen. they That's certainly they certainly make a sound that I I had never heard and as an artist made wonderful I mean you know I enjoyed making use of I would say for the installation that Casey and I have produced I think it was the second year that we were together there was what Casey pointed out was a mother treehopper and a series of either babies or what she called teenagers but there were little even littler treehoppers around her and as we put the mic uh, taped it around the branch where they were sitting, the mother started to put out a very angry alarm call, which seems to be telling you know, her young ones to you know, like kind of come in, come in, but it's definitely to watch out for whatever the giants are putting on the tree.
0: any special gear for recording this? Yeah,
4: yeah, we absolutely had to use special gear. The primary instrument we were using is called an accelerometer. We also used a vibrometer, which is about a $25,000 laser instrument. So it was was really a combination of scientific instruments with high-end audio gear and then good listening and patience. We also used a record needle at certain times, and the record needle, like placing it on vinyl, very, very, very sensitively re- reading the vibration of—I um, think it was a daddy long legs—at uh, one point walking across, walking across a leaf.
0: You know, this is amazing material on so many levels, and one of them, you talk about the emotion of hearing a certain sound or being titillated in a certain way by knowing that the instrument or the experience is unusual Mm -hmm. but then there's the level of emotion that there is an almost sentient tiny community that is beyond our understanding
4: yeah i mean that's something that i think of all the time is just the language that animals creatures are speaking whether or not we're able to interpret it or even maybe the presumption the presumption that we really do know, but it's it's impossible for me to think that there aren't all sorts of languages. Something that was really vital that I learned from Casey uh, is that, according to what she told me, ninety percent of insect sounds going on around us are inaudible to us. And so, at night, you know, we hear the cicadas, we hear crickets at a certain time of year maybe if we're near a light and it's in the dark and it's quiet you notice the flutter of a moth wing a moth flying by you and there's a real deep boom sound i love we've done some beautiful recording some moths together um but all of the 90 percent more is what we don't hear and that's working with some of these scientific devices and 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 with scientists who have the knowledge of what and what to and where to look for these sounds it's opening up just a miraculous world of all a buzz and a you know a flutter and a clutter that um, is is all communicating just outside of our our, our perception.
0: That was Stephen Vidiello, sound artist and professor of kinetic imaging at Virginia Commonwealth University. His collaborator is Dr. Casey Fowler Finn, professor of biology at St. Louis University. We close today with a tribute to another singer, doctor and musician Paul Kors. The former resident of Charlottesville and graduate of the Medical College of Virginia passed away suddenly last summer at only 38. He left behind his wife, two children, and an almost-finished album of songs. We spoke with his wife, Liz Coors, and longtime friend and producer, University of Virginia music professor Greg Howard, about Paul Coors' music and legacy.
1: He wasn't a professional singer. He wasn't a professional musician. But uh, he would come in here with a guitar part and and like, you know, Paul, I think that in order for you to do that as fast as you want the tune to be, you're going to have to work on it some more. And he would go home and he would work on it and he'd come back the next week and he would just have nailed it.
5: Oh, Diane. Around here with your heart in your
3: hands. You know, most guys would be like, look what I can do,
6: you know, <laughs> or like whip out the guitar or something, and he never did that. So I think it was a little bit later that hands. I found out that he could sing and play and write songs. Lord Unlike me, I'm sort of a, a talker
0: and a, you know, don't always think before I speak, and he so or was so thoughtful and so he didn't just talk for the sake of talking he thought about what he was going to
5: say because you remind me of the man that i ought to be same thing with his lyrics you know he would have
1: a really great song except maybe one verse wasn't quite so great and i would just say you know i I really think that 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 last verse needs to be stronger and he would you know, say okay and he would go back and he would write it over and he would come back and it would be brilliant <laughs> I would make rough mixes for him and we would finish each session and he would listen to him on the way home and I would get texts from him he was so excited he's like oh that, that sounds so great and you know, I mean these were rough mixes uh, I think if he could hear the final
5: record he would just be able to Give them an inch will take a mile
1: or two He finished recording his last vocal part probably just maybe three or four weeks before he died. Oh, Diana.
5: Well, I couldn't save you Paul would go to
0: Greg's for God knows how long. You know, it was a therapy of sorts, I would say. He really carried the weight of the world
5: sometimes, and the songs were really a way to release that. There's
1: another song on that record called "Long and Gone," which um, it's very prescient because it's about you know what when I'm gone, you know what what happens after I'm not here anymore. Uh, Let me let me grab the lyric. I want to read some of this for you. So this was part of his, his memorial service um, his family put this in um, so he says when I'm long and gone remember me in song of all the things I've done you're my favorite ones
5: when I'm long and gone I've been working on um, I want you to read it and I read it
6: and of course I just started crying because I thought this sounds like a suicide What's note like oh my god <laughs> but it, he said no it's god just this very him. strong wanting to have his
3: his self be remembered
5: so when you need a friend think of me again.
1: soon as I found out that he had died, I really knew right away that we had to get the music out there. And my goal for it is really to have other artists record his songs, because the songs are really the work. You know, the record is cool. I like the record, but I really want people to, to hear his songs and to be inspired to record them themselves. ¶¶
6: that I can pop a CD in the car and it's like, oh, here he is. You know, he's here. Because it's different than writing in a photograph. It's to actually hear someone's voice is very powerful. You know, when the kids are fighting or whatever, I'll just put it, I won't even say anything. I'll just put it on
5: and they just mellow out. Nothing I would change
6: carry on and i think oh my gosh
3: we are but
5: it's not easy remember me in song
1: you know i just i just really hope that people who hear this music decide that they want to try their hand at it you know i want to play a paul kors song
0: Liz Coors and Greg Howard, sharing their memories of Paul Coors. On October 12th, Greg and three friends will perform Paul songs with the Paul Coors Band at an historic venue in Charlottesville, Virginia called The Southern. Proceeds benefit the Paul Coors Fund at the John Ritter Research Foundation for Aortic Health. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason, from Virginia Humanities. The Pulitzer Prize for Music is traditionally thought of as somewhat of a lifetime achievement award, given out mostly to established composers late in their careers. That changed in 2013, when the prize was awarded to Caroline Shaw, at age 30, the youngest ever winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Music, for her work, Partita for Eight Voices. Since winning the Pulitzer, Caroline continues to delight the music world her work draws on her expertise as a violinist, a vocalist, and a whole lot in between. This piece, called By and By, is a reworking of old folk songs. Uh. And this one, called Taxidermy, was written to be played on flower pots. Caroline, I want to start by listening together to a portion of the piece you won the Pulitzer for, Partita for Eight Voices. Here it is, performed by your vocal group, Roomful of Teeth. Great name. (laughs) (laughs) It is a great
6: name. (laughs) Roomful of Teeth was founded... Um, by Brad Wells, a conductor who's at Williams College who has had for many, many years this idea of bringing together um, singers, maybe classically trained, to study vocal techniques from around the world and um, commission composers and develop new repertoire that really incorporates different
0: colors um, of the voice and different ways of being expressive. I've heard it described in just incredible ways. Somebody wrote, room full of teeth, makes sounds, some sweet, others alarming, that you probably haven't heard from a group of humans. <laughs>
6: <laughs> We're definitely all human. It's only voices. It's eight people. Um, but you might hear the voice being used in an unusual way in a musical context. I'm going to play... Just kind of the beginning, which is just talking, up until where the music comes in.
2: To the side, to
6: the side. To the side and around through the middle. To, and. The, side. to the
4: side, to the side.
6: To the side around through the middle. To and. the side,
4: to the side.
6: To the side, around, and around and around, and around and around. To, around, the, to
2: the side, two, three,
6: four, five, five six, six, seven, eight. Have the line drawn from
3: the left, 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 left side, and around and around and
6: around So right there, right off the top, you heard direction, wall drawing directions from the conceptual artist Saul LeWitt. So these, so um, take a midpoint from the line drawn from the left side. Sort of sounds like directions for making a, a drawing or building a house. And then also to the side, to the left, Alman left around, around and, and through, which are sort of American square dance directions. And there's an interesting parallel where you, you're using text and words to create something that is just otherworldly and and the words fail and that's where the music comes in. And that sound is kind of a bright ah, um, nothing particularly choral about it. In one bar, in about two seconds, we go from everyone speaking in the way that you hear me right now going back into their sort of lowering your soft palate and then getting into more guttural sound and then you get into vocal fry uh, and then one person comes in on a note which is me actually and then another one and then half a second later the entire group is coming in Uh, so this just ecstatic kind of essential basic melody.
0: It's also this willingness not to have to so-called be beautiful as you're singing, mm-hmm. but to let your voice just sort of open and pour out all its humanness and yet do yeah. it expertly.
6: <laughs> uh, yeah, very. It's if you could, you know, it's the way you're just yelling across to someone you haven't seen in 10 years. It's like so you saw them on the street. Oh my gosh! Oh my God, it's so great to see you. That kind of ecstasy in music is what that's the kind of sound that I was going for.
0: <laughs> Boy, you did it. Tell me some other parts as we're listening along now. Sure. Let's play. Let's see what happens.
2: <laughs> A square divided horizontally and vertically. the and four diamond parts, down one down one gray, The wall yellow, is bordered and divided, one. divided into your four evil evil
3: parts. Line. So
6: there we have we've taken that ecstatic oh my goodness it's so great to see you and then softened it into kind of a choral sound and mixing back in the little the text the drawing the directions for making patterns kind of woven in there for one bar it's like a little barbershop harmony moment I heard that boom 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 yeah I don't know it's just so fun and uh, let's we'll just play a little bit more oh my God.
3: from the midpoint
6: of each of the side. You heard a little section where it goes, mm-hmm, 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 just for four bars. It's this, um, I like it, it has this rhyth- rhythmic energy and it feels like running, um, but it's actually a, a gesture that is kind of inspired by um, Inuit throat singing from northern Quebec. We worked with a, um, a couple of really amazing singers, one of whom is Evie Mark, who work in this tradition. I can give you a little demonstration of of one. I'm not an expert, but please. Um, yeah, let's see. Oh God! This is a kind called hume, and my my hume technique is is a little louder. Some people have a more refined, quieter quality, but this one's pretty bright, and you'll hear the the buzzy brightness of the fundamental note on the bottom, but then if you listen closely, you'll hear these overtones on top, which sounds like a little flute. And it's one voice. <laughs> That's one kind of throat singing. And then I, the one I was referring to earlier, though, is Inuit throat singing. So it's, it uses the throat in a different way. I'll give you an example of that. Um, mm, 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 mm. So you'll hear that there's a note, mm, <laughs> which is just humming in the top, you know. That's my I like this one because you can sort of hum. But then on the bottom, you can create these...
0: Like, all the world's down below. Can you give me an example of that sound? I mean, it's so great to hear the breathy parts. You would think that's not allowed in vocal singing. The, you know, we're always hiding our breaths or
3: trying mm-hmm. to treat
0: our breaths in very special ways, and yet we're just letting it hang out there.
6: Right. <laughs> the breath is, I think, it's one of the most expressive sounds that we have. You can hear when you're speaking to someone, if they, oh, you're know, like, oh, I'm so sorry. We use our breath in these really important, nuanced ways. This is the beginning of the third movement called Courant, where we're using this pattern hmm, and passing it back and forth among the four female singers.
0: anyways the message you share with young people among many others is you can break out of the sort of same old mold of playing somebody else's stuff and really play with it play with music play with sounds yeah
6: play with what's around don't don't be afraid to think about what's around you and how it would filter through your own compositional voice
0: i want to play a little bit of the piece you composed for the brooklyn youth chorus It's called It's Motion Keeps. Sure. So It's Motion Keeps is a piece
6: for the Brooklyn Youth Chorus, um, all treble voices and viola, solo viola. And the text is from an old shape-note hymn.
0: So amazing that you have come to do so beautifully composition and pieces with vocal groups when really for the first couple of decades of your life it was all violin. You started playing violin growing up in North Carolina at the age of two. Mm-hmm.
6: My mom is a violin teacher for younger students, Suzuki students and I had two older brothers who played violin so it was always around. I don't rem- really, I think I... I studied with Suzuki, which is the idea that one can learn to play music the way one speaks a language, which I love this idea. We all, as children, learn this incredibly complex thing, which is speaking, and I was I was learning violin at the same time I was learning
0: to speak. You went off to continue your violin training at Rice University. Did you write music then? When I really focused on violin, I wasn't writing music except
6: for a tiny bit, kind of in secret, on my own, and I I sang for two years in an a cappella group there, mm. and I I didn't even know what a cappella was. I just saw the sign, "Do you like to sing? Come audition." I said, like, "Okay." <laughs> Can you beatbox? And then discover this whole I don't beatbox. I, oh, actually, I did. I I definitely did a little. Was there a little it was bit? It's like
0: for Madonna's "Like a Prayer." <laughs> yeah. Was it at Rice where you received the wonderful scholarship called a Watson? It was. I think that was also a surprise to people in the departments
6: that I didn't know you wrote music. And the Watson Fellowship was you can propose any idea of how to spend a year outside of your home country doing a project, and it means spending a lot of time by yourself. So I had this idea. I loved um, architecture and the way that people write about architecture, especially landscape architecture, and I had done this paper early on in college about um, the concept of taste and aesthetics in the Baroque era, and how people were speaking about sort of music and musical taste in parallel with um, garden design and what a garden means and what this land, what a landscape means. And do you tame the environment and order it, or do you sort of let it be? what it is and how do you tame music and can you tame noise and shape it into something different and taming nature or letting it be what it is I think comes into the way I work with the voice and room full of teeth where you can let your voice come from this noisy part and then oh, going from there into melody and into harmony ah. Um, and there's something incredibly organic about that that reminds me of of nature and and the way things grow and the way things come out
0: of the earth and then beca- have, take this slender and um, billowing form. Did you have any other musical influences that sort of came out of this year of wandering? <laughs> <laughs> well, oddly, during
6: that year of wandering, I met a great musician in Brussels, and She played for me the famous album um, Mystery of the Bulgarian Voices and I'll play a little bit for you right now. So one of the beautiful things about the way that these um, Bulgarian women's choirs sing is that they use a very bright and brassy sound that we sometimes call belting and you hear this sound in, sometimes in Broadway and in pop huh. and I can demonstrate a little bit for you here I'm going to step away from the mic because it's it's loud but um ah! So I'm using the air in a particularly concentrated way up at the top of my voice. The opposite of that would be, or just a different version in the same range, is your head voice, which is sort of a softer sound, maybe a little bit more air in it. But when you have 40 women singing with this bright belting quality, it's just so powerful and moving and rich. I love to use this in my music for Roomful of Teeth, and there's a section of Saraband where the men built. Uh. ¶¶ So there we have the guys singing actually up in the same range that I just was. That's just kind of a women's pop range. And they're right up there with it. And it's this incredibly powerful sound.
0: And isn't it amazing how life is? You on your one year wandering journey, bumping into people, forming relationships, experiencing Bulgarian music. Bringing it back later and incorporating it into a Pulitzer Prize-winning piece, you know, that's so great.
6: (laughs) The world is a really rich and beautiful place if you sort of pay attention and there's all these things floating around. And I'm lucky that I I get to sometimes combine them
0: into strange pieces of music. (laughs) I've heard so many people say what I obviously see with you here, how upbeat, kind, and optimistic you are. But I've also heard you say life is so incredibly beautiful and exhilarating, but also painfully, tragically lonely. Yeah, this is a
6: something I think about with the concept of of joy. What is what is joy and people sometimes say um, describe my music in that way. But there's a part of joy that's actually incredibly, it comes out of the deep loneliness and sort of the tragic tragedy of the human condition that we are essentially are all alone. And yet those moments of being able to be singing or making music with others or or connecting with someone else are so powerful that contrast between joy and sadness is essential for me in, in writing music. That's a hard thing to
0: talk about. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. You had a lot of church experience, and I don't mean that you yourself are religious, but a lot of spiritual liturgy that you were part of that probably has influenced how you think of music. Mm-hmm. I think some of my most, I don't know how to say it, deep, deepest spiritual
6: kind of musical experiences have been when, while singing or listening to music in church, and I often actually still go into churches and just experience the kind of, especially just, you know, large vaulted cathedral-like churches and listen to the space and listen to voices in that space. Um, I still find it really moving.
0: You have such a strong, beautiful, and pure voice. Has anyone ever mentioned to you that it is akin to the voice of the great singer Judy Collins? Has anyone ever said oh, that? No, but that's so kind cu- I love her i I love her voice.
6: I do like the kind of a voice that sounds as close to one's speaking voice. I yes, like if I actually was just talking to you and then I just started singing in the exact same voice as I was speaking. so I'd kind of if you heard me, it just went into a melody and you're making melodies all the time, but there's this very natural place that. We all have in our speaking voice. And if you just kind of channel it into into a melody, then it's really the most natural place to sing.
0: <laughs> and I think that folk singers really get that. What did you get from Ph.D. work at Princeton? What emerged from that? That was a
6: wonderful time to sort of meet other composer colleagues that were working in different, different ways and... Um, and I think still a couple of my favorite pieces that I've done have came out of those first two years. And I can play actually one piece. It's called *Ontract*. It's a string quartet. I went kind of a deep dive into the string quartet and what that meant, you know, what that meant for me as a younger player when I was 10 and and what the music of Mozart and Haydn mean to me.
0: Oh, that wonderful thing that we hear later—you do with voices, bringing together in a slightly dissonant, unified tone, and then springing off into little rifts, all on their own. Beautiful. Mm, thank you.
6: Yeah, I like sort of creating a little, little tiny bits of, as you say, dissonance and noise, and something that is—you um, have this sense that something's not not quite right. And then it just on a dime turns back into the beautiful ordered world that it was kind of shifting back and forth between those two things.
0: Well, Caroline Shaw, this has been fantastic. Thank you for sharing your insights and music with me on With Good Reason. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And and
6: I, I really thank you for doing what you do and for sharing these wonderful stories.
0: Caroline Shaw is a New York-based musician and composer. Her composition, Partita for Eight Voices, won a Pulitzer Prize for Music. We leave you with a song from her album called Orange, performed by the Attica Quartet. This program was made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerczyk, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. We had help this week from Lauren Francis. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.